I have a story, a little personal story that I think relates quite well to your um, psych science paper about cooperation and pain. About two years ago, I joined a rowing club. And so it was just a beginner's club and there were, I don't know, five people or so were in it. Uh, we didn't know each other. And so like in the beginning of each training session, it was kind of a bit um, maybe distant. Like none of us were super awkward or anything, but it was kind of slightly distant. And we didn't talk too much or whatever before the actual training started. Anyway, then one day um, our trainer said, shall we do a 1K test row? Uh, so 1K test row will take... Uh, well, if you like world record speed, it'll take you two and a half minutes or something. If you're vaguely fit, it will take you under four minutes. But like, anyway, so I don't know if you've ever rode for time or anything like that, um, but it's very unpleasant. <laughs> it's <laughs> okay. probably the most unte yeah. unpleasant sport almost I know of. Mm, mm. And yeah, anyway, yeah. so we, we asked our trainer, like, um, what would be a really good time for a 1K test? And he didn't really want to answer the question, but he's, after we asked him a few times, he said, like, well, if you can do it in under three minutes, I'll be very impressed. Mm -hmm. For anyone listening, don't try and row a kilometer under three minutes. <laughs> it's not a good <laughs> idea. Mm. Um, anyway, so we started, like, super fast, as far, you know. Yeah. And then we had the fly and die, which is very common in rowing. Anyway, so it was a very unpleasant experience. Um, mm. We all kind of did it for our own. We didn't do it as a team per se. We just kind of wanted to see how hard we can do. Mm. Anyway, after those like, you know, three to four minutes of pretty intense pain, after that, the atmosphere and the team changed completely. Mm. I mean, team is almost the wrong word, but we, at first it was, it really was just like a few people doing a kind of thing on their own. And suddenly like everyone was so much friendlier and warmer towards each other yeah and yeah it was funny when i then read your paper like uh two years ago or something i thought like oh that's exactly <laughs> the way it was then when somehow this shared painful experience made us bond in this way yeah yeah so i wanted to say that uh, tell that little story just to kind of introduce the two topics of pain and um cooperation um could you maybe for like has doesn't have to be long just briefly summarize your psych science paper about pain and cooperation yeah, sure. Kind of what you found. Yeah, so um, so in that in that paper, we uh, we had people, we exposed groups of people to very similar activities, although in one condition they were painful. So um, we we had people either put their hands in uh, buckets of, of ice water or in uh, buckets of, of room temperature water, and and all all the studies where we used that, we we had a little container in the bottom which we had people kind of put these fishing sinkers little ball little sort of metal balls into the container in the bottom it, uh, it was the reason for that was we we realized that um asking people to do something for as long as they could um when it was painful was obviously going to be a lot shorter than asking them to do something for as long as they could when it wasn't painful uh, so the control condition could have gone on for a very long time so we but, but people couldn't just hold their hand in the, you know in the water for no good reason or have no sense of what they were doing so we had this little task and in one one case we just told them to stop after after 90 seconds that was the and, and you know how many how many of those ball bearings they put into the into the um the, the container in the bottom and in the in the um in the iced water condition they just did it for as long as they could which tended to be about you know between well i think it's something about 40 seconds or 30 somewhere around there anyway um some people went for longer um actually the ones who went for longer were the male participants when it was a female experiment of mostly 
<laughs> so, um, so, so we found in the first study that that that, that after doing those those tasks, that the the groups that had shared in the painful tasks. So, and we had a, we had in that in that particular paper we had two tasks. So there was the, the iced water, and then there was also asking people to hold a, a ninety degree angle with their legs, like a leg squat, up against the the, the wall, uh, actually against a desk. Which becomes very painful very quickly in the in the you know in the quads. So we we had people either do that or balance on one foot, which also was somewhat technical, not 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 very, but enough so that they felt they were doing something. And and then again, we just stopped them after sort of ninety seconds. So those tasks both went for about the same period of time. And then after that, we asked people to to list you know respond to a whole lot of questions about how bonded they felt as a group, how much they felt they shared important similarities, how much they felt they could trust other people in the group. And we've oh, sorry, these were people were doing this as a group, not individually, as you usually have in the experiment. In, right? That's right. In this in this case, because it was yeah, it had to be all about how people were actually responding to each other in 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 the group context. Um, so they rated they rated um, yeah their other group members how they felt about them on the on this measure. And so we found that um, that after the after the painful uh, activities, um, people rated the other group members as you know i guess on our what we call bonding there was a higher level of bonding and we just again that was about seven questions that we we put together which really illustrated for us that that, that concept um and then in in the next study we did the same thing again except this time we had a uh a cooperation cooperation games we wanted to see whether or not this would translate into actual behavior and in that game people could uh, over six trials, choose a number between one and seven. Um, if they chose a, a seven, I think they could get about, um, can't remember now, eight dollars or something like that. Or, or uh, some, some amount like that, but, but only if everybody else chose a seven. And, and then if, if, if you chose it, but if you chose a seven and, and somebody else in your group chose a, chose a one, they would then get, I think it was $4.20, whereas um, you would now only get 60 cents. So the higher the number you chose, the more reliant you were on your group members to also choose high numbers for you to be able to do well. And if you all chose high numbers together, you would do, you'd do better. Um, but of course, you know, if people didn't trust other members in their group, choosing the low numbers meant they would back themselves and, you know, get a decent amount of money, even if other people defected. So, um, so really, it was a measure of um, cooperation or trust. So we found again in that study, the second study, that after sharing those painful activities, people chose higher numbers on average across those six trials, and therefore indicating that they, you know, they, they had a higher level of cooperation and trust in the group. And um, then in the third study, we rather than get them to do the, the, those, those strange activities, we got them to do just a, you know, a more every day. Not really every day, but you know, I guess people eat hot peppers, so we got them to eat hot peppers. Uh, or or a butterscotch, um, which is ostensibly a pleasant activity, and um, and again people uh, people you know cooperated more after having shared that experience of eating. And these these were quite hot. We we made sure they were um, they, they weren't mild. <laughs> so we gave people yogurt and things to try and cool down afterwards. But um, yes, yeah, so so we found again that uh, that people cooperated more after after engaging the painful activity. Mm-hmm. Actually, maybe can we start? Uh, can we can you briefly explain like how, why this particular study? Because you don't. I mean, you work on pain rather than cooperation, right? Um, was it just to explore the social effects of people sharing pain, or what precisely was the motivation there for you and your co-authors? 
So my, my whole motivation with the with the pain research, uh, really, I, I mean, in the first in the first instance, um, I probably stumbled across it more than anything, and uh, and started to realise there was something something interesting about pain that hadn't really been examined. And I'd also been at the time doing some work around uh, this this notion of you know strong norms around the importance of happiness and and how where where you know in context where people felt a, a, a significant pressure to to experience and express happiness they tended to actually experience more of the opposite um and and so f- one of the issues there is just the tendency to you know to overvalue those positive states and and to devalue or not really see the value in more negative experiences in life and and so by the time you know we were doing this work, I'd really, I'd really sort of started to try and explore really quite a range, uh, um, somewhat un, you know, somewhat differentiated range of positive upsides to to painful experiences, and and I, I was always interested in pain in a very broad sense, but um, thought that you know if you if you were going to explore that, then physical pain was probably the you know the first port of call, and to to try and look at it in that way because it was a again it was something we could we could study in the lab, we could induce it um, in an acute sense, and um, and I do think that it's not probably not all of not all negative experiences. I don't think we would find um, what we what we observed with physical pain in all negative experiences, but I do think that it does. You know, some of the things we found would would likely replicate. Um, you know, at least conceptually, um, across a range of negative human experiences. You know, yeah. So, so that was that was really where we were coming from, and 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 again, just looking quite broadly at okay, well, what are these? What are these sort of upsides? What are these benefits that that pain? And again, we wrote a theory paper um, earlier on around around you know what we thought might be a range of benefits um, that that could come from pain, and drew on. Um, during the available literature and, and the, the available theories to, to underpin those ideas. So, again, we had a, a decent theory to, you know, a, dec- a decent sort of theoretical perspective in terms of trying to explore some of these, these ideas. Uh, which paper is that? The theoretical one? Um, it's called The Benefits of Pain, I think. Um, it's, it was a personality and social psychology review. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I always put the um, references in the description of the of the episode so people don't have to search for the papers forever so i'll put that in there too yeah sure i mean i want to talk a bit more about like different kinds of pain and when pain is meaningful when not maybe more towards the end of the conversation but now in terms of the cooperation i'm curious like almost thinking in terms of boundary conditions like what kind of pain would increase cooperation between people because it seems to me that if for example one person is the sole cause of the pain inflicting it on others or something then that's probably not going to be beneficial uh, so no, what do you think are the kind no. of main parameters here to that yeah that lead to pain being beneficial rather than detrimental well that's a very big question um with a lot of answers to it i i think i mean in in that sense um in the sense of the the, the cooperation the shared experience of it yeah obviously it needs to be shared now i don't i don't think that having one person inflicting others i think actually that could work quite well i think you actually see it in a lot of um a lot of organizations where there's a bad manager sometimes the teams actually become very cohesive as a result of that 
So I don't think it matters. I think what matters is that certainly if there if if if, if there's somebody, you know, if the group is inflicting, like, well now now there are other effects, right? So we know that it, uh, when people have to go through pain in order to join a group, so the group may inflict pain on me. That's a different effect. That's a dissonance sort of effect, and and, and some old classic studies have shown that. So there are, there are a range of mechanisms in there, and I look to be honest, I've never really we've never really articulated fully what the mechanism is for our work either. I have some I have some best guesses at that, but um, you know I I think I think the mechanism is less clear. But there are certainly other other effects, probably with different mechanisms that um, you know that 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 show again that going through pain can lead people to feel more committed to groups, um, even when the group is doing it to them. So I think it's a very – there, there are certainly contexts where it would go the other way. Um, I think, you know, when when perhaps groups feel traumatised by pain or, uh, you know, in, in a way that, that there are perhaps other factors that lead groups to splinter in response to it. But I don't, I'm not sure I could articulate that in – in in one in, in one sort of go, and there's probably a lot of a lot of things in there that could actually change how it plays out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that you're um, not particularly specific on the mechanism. That is then one question that I had. Um, why you think the? I mean, is it just that you you see how people react under pain? That's what um, I think. It you is. just know a bit more about them, or yeah. That's what I think it is. I I, th I think that I think it's actually a fairly grounding, human, authentic type of experience. And so, you know, you you kind of when someone you can't kind of keep up the appearances when you're in pain. You know, you're you're all you're <laughs> yeah. all kind of, you know, and it's a it's so so I I think it's kind of yeah I, I think in a way when when you share that experience you do sort of, you do see people confronted with something that kind of breaks them down a little bit and they become very real um it's very you know you can't not be but real when you're in pain um and i think that's probably what leads to the increase in trust never really quite worked out how to measure that very effectively but um that's what i think is probably happening yeah. could be other things too i had one question which is fairly technical now about just why you chose this particular cooperation task um Yes, yeah, so it was used previously. Yeah. It was used previously in a um, a study. I'm just going to forget the authors' names and the name of the study, but it was it was um, around synchrony, synchrony and cooperation. Um, and I'm just oh, the one with the singing, or yeah, yeah. yeah I can't remember what it is. Wait, is it in your references? Otherwise, I'll just put it in the description. Yeah, yeah. I've just forgotten. The uh, yeah, I'll put it in the description. Name. I know which one you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So we, so I mean, I saw we, we really um, having seen that paper. I used basically just the same, exactly the same measure that I used. Uh, okay, okay, um, yeah, because like one, th I mean, I guess like in the totality of the paper and having the three experiments and the different measures and that kind of stuff, maybe this the, the point I'm going to make isn't super strong. Um, but like one thing that just struck me is that in a way, it's also a measure of risk more than anything else right because you have the one safe option yep. and you have the the more risky option where you can either bank basically nothing uh, yep. 60 cents or seven dollars 80 whereas the other is 420 um so in a way like it's i mean i get yeah if you use like a simple task like this which i think is a good idea then you know it's very difficult to uh, separate all factors and only have this one 
Sure. Um, yeah. But it, it did strike me as slightly... I don't know, I assumed when I saw the title of the paper it would be like a Prisoner's Dilemma or a Poker Goods game. Or mm. It's not that different from it, but... No, no, it's not. It's not. That decision... Um, yeah, no. Literally, literally, it was it was it was because it had been used in that previous work, and and that was a similar sort of study, a similar sort of approach. It was in groups, looking at the effect of synchrony on on groups. So I thought that was the probably the best the best um, candidate as as a a study to take and and I guess use a different IV um, in 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 use, use yeah to try and try and obviously you know stay close to what had been done before. Yeah, and that's just so you, it's established, you know, it works, that kind of mm. thing. Or uh, I'm assuming it's the same with like the hand in ice water, mm. um, like that yeah. kind of pain. Was it because it's easy to do in a lab? Um, I guess you need to cool the water, but. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It's a, it's a few freezes and a lot of bags of ice bought. Um, no, no, it's, it's well, the cold presser task is, is a standard pain induction. And, and look, there are other more technical ones. And of course, the way that we induce pain in all these studies, the pain, the, the pain researchers sort of laughed at because they were very technical in how they would, again, they needed to be because they needed to really titrate the amount of pain that they gave people so that there was a, you know, they, they could actually show that changes in that would lead to changes in some other sort of dependent variable. We, we were much more interested in just pain or no pain. So for us, it, you know, right. having whilst we whilst we controlled the amount of pain, we certainly didn't control it like some pain researchers would. Um, we, we didn't. You mean like with heat? Uh, yeah, that's right. Or you can, simulation you, or something. Yeah, you can come up with some pretty controlled ways of inducing pain. Um, we never felt we needed to to really go to that level to 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 examine the differences between pain versus no pain. Yeah, right. The kind of binary split mm. was enough and. Mm. It's obvious that it's not. Yeah, it's funny. Like to me, that task always sounds when once if you've never done it, it sounds very like what's the problem putting your hand in cold water? No, oh, it's it cold. is really cold. <laughs> and if you do that for a long time without moving, yeah, or barely moving, I think yeah. I I think I lasted for less than the average when I tried it. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I only did it once. Can't remember. Mm. Oh no, I, sorry, I was I was control condition. That was mm, it. Mm, mm. Um. Yeah, in a way, I, the funny thing is I don't have too many questions about this cooperation paper in a sense because I think it's uh, in a positive way very straightforward and simple. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, as in like it's, you know, clear manipulation, clear effect. You test it in a few different ways, inducing the pain and measuring cooperation or social cohesion. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, but by the way, is that a general, how do you view when you create an experiment? this kind of trade-off between precision, simplicity, and, you know, for example, you could have, in this case, said, like, okay, we want to do heat in a not binary but in continuous way, um, mm. or, I don't know, measure all sorts of different pains, mm. uh, different kinds of pa- inducing pain. I was especially asking because, like, I'm like in my PhD and I have often had this question, like, when is a paper ready? When yeah. is it good enough when, like, mm. for example, like with this kind of thing where you don't have a mechanism, I always feel like, well, you can't just show an effect. You have to also explain well, the mechanism. But that's, of course, a huge task. Yeah. Thing. Well, I mean, look, I don't, I don't think that, uh, you know, publishing a paper is the end, is the end of the road, right? I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's just one step. And, and, and so you publish it and then someone else is going to come along or you might come along and add to that um, or tear it down again. Right. Um, so I don't, I don't see, 
I, I think I think you know to to publish something you have to have enough evidence that that at least makes it feasible to 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 say what you're saying. But to, to think that in any given paper you're going to find absolute proof of the mechanism and the effect without any doubt at all, I, I don't think that's probably even real science. So you know, I, I, my my take on it is if we'll look at you know, if if you find something you feel fairly confident in, um, and and it certainly seems to be hanging about in 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 the in the research that you've done, um, and it seems yeah, it seems replicable at least within a small a small sort of sample of studies, then that's that's sufficient. And of course, don't you know? I wouldn't expect that it's not going to necessarily be debunked at some point. It may get debunked. One of the things I think that you know, one of the one of the risks I think you know um in that as well is also is also you know how much how much um how much evidence do you have even just anecdotally behind the research question so you gave a great example at the beginning of a, of, of an anecdotal experience where you've actually seen this and, and and experienced it right and there's plenty of those around there's other research in you know on anthropological rituals which have shown similar sorts of effects so when you cast your eye across quite a broad range of anecdotal examples come other research uh directions and studies and you know there's actually quite a collection of 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 evidence that suggests that this is actually what one would observe now whether or not you can replicate it exactly with the way we did it or whether or not you know there's going to you can show the mechanisms with the way we did it you know i think i think that's just part of the picture um i think i think when it gets more more shaky is when um yeah, when you sort of go out on a on a limb a little bit, and and perhaps you're showing an effect which you is is, is somehow even not intuitive, um, or or is not something that is easily experienced, or or that there's not many anecdotal examples of, or you can't draw on other related research to to show that this should be the case, and 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 then then I suppose you want to be yeah, but but still, I, to, to my mind, the publishing process is the same. You, you get it out there when when you think that you're confident in the part that you found is fairly robust and then you add to it yeah yeah i think that's probably what i need to do more of <laughs> other than <laughs> trying to have like one paper with with like 10 experiments and showing every facet and it, of course it's not even possible but no well there's a, there seems to be it seems to be somehow the, the way why it's going these days though i mean there's some papers with a lot of studies out there yeah and then it takes like two days to read it it's <laughs> mm. 40 mm. pages long or something yes true true yeah but whilst we're on the topic of, um, I mean, you briefly mentioned some stuff about like whether it reproduced and that kind of stuff. Um, so as I mentioned before we started recording, when I read your book, there were a few studies, um, uh, especially by, I mean, most of the studies are not about your research in the book. Um, there were a few when I thought, oh, is that going to replicate? Like, mm. you know, I have this uh, internal this isn't going to replicate meter mm. and a few times it went off now of course in your book you don't describe every study to the full mm. so it might just be that i didn't have enough information on all of them i mean like the one i unfortunately I didn't write down which examples i thought of but the one of the last ones that i still remember is where they have this like um you have this word puzzle and you have to find the words and all the words are about like death or something i am yeah yeah the and that stuff to me word. just uh i don't know it always sounds like this is like the pre-reproducibility crisis psychology stuff that's not gonna mm, yeah replicate yeah. without like even meaning this study in particular yeah i don't know how did you so obviously you did write this book fairly recently um so how do you also in general in your research how do you go about 
deciding whether to trust a paper. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, again, I think I think um, I don't think any of the the arguments that I make in that book are, are going to be uh, debunked, whether one of those papers doesn't replicate or not. And I suppose that's yeah, the exactly. important thing for me, right? Um, if if I was building an entire book off one paper, and certainly that has happened. Um, that would make it a whole lot more of a shaky project, but I, you know, so so in that sense, um, I, does that one does does the use or reliance on a paper which you know, I, I mean, I'm I'm a little bit, um, I mean, certainly some of this priming research hasn't turned out to to be too replicable in some cases, although that doesn't mean that all of it isn't, um, and and so I think I think there is a tendency to. To throw to throw a lot of things out with the bathwater sometimes when in this whole in this whole endeavor and um, and you know I mean just because something hasn't replicated doesn't mean it didn't actually also work in the first place right I mean which which of those pieces how, how often do you not replicate something until it's no longer true um, I mean obviously there's a point right but I mean one one failed replication isn't isn't you know going to to, to be sufficient I don't think. But again, if if you know, and 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 again, if you've got one study with an effect that sort of aligns with the large body of other work or or some general ideas um, which have other kinds of evidence even behind them, then you you know you can take some confidence in that. And if you, that one study fails to replicate, do you throw the whole big picture out? I don't think so, right? I, I mean, I think this is one of the things that sometimes people have have um, you know people have forgotten. I mean, that that, that a lot of that embodiment research was really showing one idea and that is that you can kind of prime things across different sensory modalities um and, so what's and the embodiment research well where where again you know you're priming priming one sensory modality or one approach um you know to to you know priming concepts over here and finding responses over there there was often it was often quite indirect the way that the priming would be would be conducted but again, um, you know, to me, it, 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 there's some basic ideas that probably seem true in that work. Whether or not each one or every one of those replicates, I, I, you know, obviously is, is up for debate. Um, and it's good to do it. It's good to be checking on these things and replicating them and finding out which ones do. But yeah, I think, I think we did sort of run away from all of that pretty quickly at some point. And I think there's other things you've got to consider about whether or not you want to sort of see something is holding some water or contributing to a body of evidence that is broader than just that one paper. Yeah. Yeah. So it is, uh, yeah, the field of research rather than a particular paper that also in part makes, hmm. um, yeah, determines the trustworthiness of a paper almost. Yeah. Well, across, across fields too, right? Because I mean, you may have evidence from different fields converging. Um, and I think that's, that's good. That's, that's important. Um, and look, you know, anecdotal evidence is still evidence. It's not, it's not great, but I mean, you know, you, you, you sometimes draw on that to go, look, this, this is something that we seem to experience and it seems to align with some data, um, in, um, you know, in, in a study. Uh, which is often, you know, and, and let's be fair. I mean, to, to run these studies, we often have to strip things back to such a level. Um, you know, that, 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 well, which is, which, which one, which you're going to believe more, your experience in the world or this, or the evidence from this study. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's good to show it empirically. I think it's great we can do that. But we do have to be real about what we're actually doing when we're doing this. I mean, we are stripping things right back to show something in its purest form. That doesn't mean that if we can't show it, that the whole thing's now not, not true. You know, <laughs> it may be, yeah. it may be, but you know. 
Yeah, the reduction of thing is something I'm thinking about too because I've mm. done some stuff with the prisons dilemma, that kind of stuff, and these social dilemmas and cooperation tasks. And of course, it has practically nothing to do with any real world behavior you might be interested in. Yeah, in some way, you hope it still extrapolates to it. Well, I think it's the beauty of. It. I mean, I, I like doing that kind of research because of the simplicity and and because it is um, it does tap directly into. Uh, you know, directly into these kind of core, core underlying ideas. So that, that's a, it's my my preferred research. But I'm also a realist when it comes to what you know what I'm actually doing in that space. I mean, it's very abstract, um, and and you're getting people to do things, and, and you to, to, again to show causality, to show mechanism, you've got to abstract things to such a level. Um, so you've got to you've got to take a grain of salt with all of it. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I said, I'd also like to talk about the book hmm. that you wrote, uh, The Other Side of Happiness. Yeah. Um, maybe whilst we're talking about kind of practical things, uh, just uh, first how, uh, or maybe if, yeah, maybe first like why, why, why you wrote this book, um, you, and because I also want to afterwards get to how, how did you do that? Because as far as I understand, you already were a professor and had children and everything. Um, <laughs> so yeah, why like take on the extra? The extra mm. workload of writing a book. Well, I've always, I've always, uh, always enjoyed translating the, uh, you know, the, the ideas and, and work. I've, I've found that really important. It's, it's, yeah, uh, I, it's, it's great to do the basic research um, and to communicate that through an academic, through academic channels. But I've, all, I've always enjoyed the translational part of it as well um, to see where it lands and how it actually shapes dialogue and how people think. So, <clears throat> yes, that's that's probably why I wrote the book. Um, seems like seems like more more and more people are doing that these days. So, thought I should probably have a go at it too. And yeah, it was an interesting journey um, to do that. Even even just learning how to do it and and what what the process is and what what they actually want us to write. You know, as as as, a, as I suppose a, a scientist communicating science and how you do that. So I spent a lot more time reviewing methods. Um, writing that book than I than I normally might because you know that's actually what you communicate to people is the methods you know how how the evidence was derived what people did you tell the story right so the the story you often tell is actually a story of methods. Um, yeah, you do that more than I've seen in other books also like describing mm. the. I mean, obviously you can't go into huge detail in a book like this if you want to describe several studies, but mm. um, yeah, you do go into quite a bit of detail. I think um, in terms of like what the actual study was. Hmm. Um, in a way, I think giving, I guess, almost more of an insight into how science works, also rather than just saying people found that cooperation uh, pain increases cooperation or whatever. Right? Like, I mean, I might have overdone it. Uh, that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's uh, yeah. For me, it's also interesting because I then you know don't have to read the entire paper. You know, mm. you get like a snapshot. I think it like, it's really, sometimes I wished like, you know, sometimes I thought like, oh, okay, maybe I didn't need to know the details of this study. But mm. then other times I thought like, I need more details about the study. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, uh, and that's probably just like my, you know, someone's personal, uh, what interests you most. Sure. Yeah. But it is kind of nice to have like a small snapshot of like what they actually did. But, uh, if you don't mind, can we talk just about the practicality? So I'm also interested in yeah. uh, writing and that kind of stuff. So um, did you, 
you you decided did you decide to want to write a book and then you you know contacted agents or whatever or did i don't know someone read your a newspaper report of your paper or whatever yeah so i mean i always always wanted to write a book um it always was something i you know had in mind to do um so i, I had it you know it was one of those lists of things the bucket list write a book um and um well, as it happened, I, I wrote something for the conversation website in the UK and then uh, had a, um, an agent contact me and say, do you want to write a book? So I said, yes, but not anything about the not anything about that article I wrote, but maybe something else. <laughs> so I, I was lucky to about? get... Hey? What was oh, the I've, article about? I've actually forgotten. Okay. I could look it up. <laughs> yep. But um, I... Um, after being contacted by him, I obviously that was a, a good a good kind of motivator to to put together a book proposal, which I had no idea how to do. But I asked a friend who'd written a book, and then looked at theirs and copied that, and and then got some feedback and, and found the agent was quite useful in, in in helping with that. I mean, I had to in the end also um, write a number of you know write write a couple of uh, full chapters uh, or at least one full chapter, and I think I ended up writing writing a couple of full chapters, but. You have to write quite a bit as part of the proposal, um, so that you know any any agent can then see, um, yeah, see how you write and all the you know that's that's important as well. Um, yeah, and then um, then then they take that and they yeah, again again the agent helps to to edit it and shape it up with you, and then they they shop it around um, and try and get a, a book deal for you. At which point, you know, you get various criticisms of your writing and whatever else. So it's a brutal, brutal, it's a brutal experience. No, 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 probably no more brutal than the academic experience. I think, yeah. I think the agents were always, or the, you know, the, the agents or, or editors were always quite sort of um, careful. And I said, look, don't worry, I'm an academic. I'm used to getting, you know, criticized and told, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is the worst paper I've ever read, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, so so and so then once once you know once you've got that that agent, um, you then uh, and and the deal, you then go on and write write the full book. Um, for in and I mean some people do it the other way around, write the full book and then get a deal. So it, it just depends. Yeah, that's how it works. It seems me. to me that the the whole uh, I can't remember what phrase you just used. The the selling the book to the publishers must have gone right if you got it. Publisher Penguin, right? I mean, it's, to me, it would seem that that's one of the you know, it's one of the biggest mm. publishers. From the yeah. outside, it seems like that would be what one would hope for. I don't know. Yeah, look, that that was that was. I think that was that was good. That was that was good to get that. Um, to be honest, uh, there, it wasn't like there was a um, you know a, a fight on between the publishers. I think that was the only offer I got. <laughs> <laughs> so what you want is a fight between the publishers, and they start you know raising yeah, exactly. raising the the deal. Well, I never had that experience, and. Um, and moreover, never never actually managed to um to sell to sell to get a deal in the American market, um, which I was a bit disappointed about. But you know that's how it went. Oh, it's only so. Wait, what does that exactly mean? I mean, I'm in Ger I'm in Germany, and I ordered it via Amazon. Yeah, so it was it was bought in the UK um, by Penguin in the UK, um, and they and then it was also released in Australia. And um, but the other you know the other sort of. Um, you know, it, 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 often you'll get a publisher buy it in a different country. It can be released through the UK publisher, or another publisher will buy it and kind of promote it, get behind it in that country. So um, that that didn't. So the US one never came off. But um, but you know, it's um, 
Yeah, so it's a funny, it's an interesting process. Um, it, it's certainly, uh, it, it's you know, you, you go through. Uh, it's an emotional roller coaster ride in some ways, which is fun, right? I mean, you know what? What else are you going to do in life? <laughs> but um, but yeah, yeah, it's an interesting. I'd probably I'd probably approach it differently next time a little bit. But um, how? Oh, I think I think um, I think I think probably uh, you know seeing it. I mean, look, it depends what you what what you want to do. I mean, if it's just about communicating, then you know that's that's fine. Uh, I think I think you know to often with a book, you either need you need to, you need a platform, which I you know don't need a reasonable size public profile or platform to 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 be able to actually get people to to, to buy it, um, or you use the book as a platform to do something else. So yeah. I don't think I really knew that. I just wrote a book. <laughs> but it seems you had, um, in a way, it sounds like a somewhat easier route that the agent contact you kind of had an agent mm. without without trying to. That's true. That's um, true. Yeah, yeah. From what I've heard, that in itself can be a step. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's true. Very nitpicky question but like mm. one thing i heard and i i don't know whether this is in any way true or just like a myth on the internet but i heard that publishers often want books that are 300 pages long no that like that's a thing did you did they ever because yours is pretty short right it's like 190 pages roughly which is mm. I, I i love books that are like 200 pages long or something i think that's usually better than 300 um, yeah. I, I was just curious whether that was ever like the book length was that, was that ever a part of the conversation or was it yeah yeah no i think i think um so so i was i was actually uh, i was actually told that, that that would be that would be sort of the length to write to um so which length the, the length that i wrote uh, yeah okay. so around okay, that okay. around that so i can't remember how many words it is but um um but yeah i, I think it, it is a shorter it is a shorter book and again probably i would I'd learn how to tell more stories around the thing. Uh, you know, I think I think sometimes I, I, so I think I think some reviews of it is like it's, it's like reading a thesis. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I needed to like, you know, tell more stories or something um, next time. Yeah. And that that might be that might that maybe that's where the extra hundred thousand words comes from, <laughs> or the extra you know, yeah, a hundred pages, hundred pages. So yeah, I mean, when I think I don't. I, when I think about like other books I've read, very roughly in the same, I would imagine target audience or that kind of thing. Mm. And if I remember, I think I don't know why I'm thinking of Adam Grant's book because I must have read that like six years ago now. Um, anyway, that comes to mind right now, and I think he does a lot of. I talked to this person and this company. Yes. I mean, of course, it's about companies, right? But um, yeah, it's, it's he a lot of that. Man. Yeah, and I guess yeah. If you do that, then you do get another fifty yeah. percent more book. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's good to do that because people people do like a narrative. Um, but yeah, whether or not, with yeah, again, you, I, I suppose, yeah, we're not we're not you know we're not we're not trained to write narratives as as psychological scientists. So. You know. Yeah. A, I mean, I also a, wonder sometimes with those books. I feel like, okay, Jesus, do I have to really know someone's entire life story just to, mm, to get to get an example to the, of this thing? You know. Well, again, that, that depends exactly. So the, the audience is important, isn't it? So I think you know, if you if you're wanting to if you're wanting to communicate to an audience who just want to get some ideas, 
um, telling those stories probably communicates, communicates those ideas most effectively. Um, if, you, if you're writing for an audience who wants to kind of get into the, you know, the evidence and, and, and really into the, I suppose, the underlying kind of, you know, ideas rather than the top, you know, the kind of high level stuff, um, then, then that, um, yeah, probably writing more technically is, is and, and those books are going to be more satisfying. So it really depends on who's reading it and what they're reading it for. Yeah. Yeah. But did you have a specific audience in mind or did you just want to summarize it for yourself or? Uh, Look, I, 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 I don't think. As I said, I probably would go into it next time with more forethought. I just started writing a, started writing a book. Actually, I was advised to, I was advised to write, um, you know, to, to, to keep it fairly sort of um, evidence based and focused more than I thought I would have to, and and to write, you know, not not to kind of try and yeah be too jovial or anything like that. So. Yeah, so there was there was a tendency. There, there was certainly a. I was the, the editor did suggest that that was probably the way to try and communicate, you know, the ideas. Um, so, uh, starting to slight, slightly more about the content of the book rather than the making of it. Uh, so, one thing I kept waiting when I read the book and that never happened is if you, I don't know whether there are different copies. I have the paperback copy mm-hmm. on the picture on the front. You have a. Not, uh, how should we say, it doesn't exactly say Sisyphus underneath. No. But it's pretty much a depiction of that fable. Yeah, I know. Uh, but you never mentioned it in the book, right, as far as I can tell. I was just curious, like, did, yeah, how did that? Well, you see, that, that picture was drawn after, that was that was after the book was written, right? And and um, so their, their artist came up with that picture, and I actually... I, I actually asked the editor that exact question: "Is that is that what it's a picture of?" And I never got an answer, but I just assumed it was obviously was. Um, it has to be right. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly, oh, no. exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, no, it um, the, that was an interpretation of what was already written by by the um, the cover artist. Yeah. But did you consider? I don't know. I, also, just in terms of talking about, I mean, yeah, of course, I was going back to priming i was very strongly primed to think about sisyphus mm. by having this picture mm. on the front mm. um but is that did you ever consider um and i don't know, like I, for example you mentioned brave new world briefly um and somehow i expected like that and the the myth of sisyphus by Camus to somehow be part of, i mean i guess you said you like it is more technical in that sense mm. the book mm. that you wrote mm. um yeah okay but that okay so this image is just uh yeah, an artist afterwards. Thought, yeah, this represents it nicely. That's right. That's right. But yeah, certainly, it's it's, it's certainly the right the right image. I thought. <laughs> so I have now. I guess if we talk about the book, then we fairly quickly get to kind of these broader questions in life. And one big one that I'm not, that I still haven't, I don't really know how to think about it is hmm. how to, when to decide to go for convenience, comfort, and efficiency, and when. To kind of, when it's good to make it hard, kind of. So, mm. I think, like in some sense, it's obvious. I would say that it's it's good to have a washing machine or something like mm-hmm. that. Sure, like you know, to to make your life easy in that way. But somehow, if you only do that, you reach this point where, and I think I might have slightly gone there the last few years, where you kind of you expect and kind of want everything to be easy. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, I don't know. How do you think about, like, maybe in your own life or something, how do you decide whether something should be easy or whether it's good for it to be difficult or... Well, 
I, I, I think probably uh, a different way to answer that is just to realise how often in life we're actually seeking out difficulty. So, I mean, you're doing a PhD. I mean, that's a, you know, okay, so you've got a washing machine, don't wash your own clothes, but you are doing a PhD so that, you know, you can give yourself a tick <laughs> on that one. That's pretty, you know, that's, it's kind of hard and torturous, right? So, um, so you know, we, I think, I think actually, when when you step back, you realise that a lot of the things we already seek out in life do do involve an element of discomfort and difficulty and, and even pain. You know, so so I think we're already doing this. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, how much? Yeah, when when do you when do you make a conscious effort or or choice to to engage a little more of it? Um, and, and I, look, I, I probably don't have a great answer to that. I mean, I, I probably do think about that a bit in terms of kids and my kids. And okay, when is it? You know, how much do you push them, um, and and how much do you sort of sometimes make them go through experiences, let them go through experiences which are perhaps going to challenge them, and, and to how and to what extent? Uh, I think I think for us, um, yeah, I, I I mean I mean broadly broadly, I, I, you know, you 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 start to feel unhappy in life if you don't have any of those challenges or experiences, even even just you know even just the the pain of exercise is incredibly important um, in terms of the mental health benefits that come from that, um, and I do I do mean that. I think it's I think it's obviously exercise is great per se, but I mean it's also it's also a, a way in which we're kind of drawn in and away from other things we're worried and thinking about because we're we're pushing against something that's quite difficult, and that in, in any exercise requires that. So so I think I think when you zoom out and and look at it. And, and realize that a lot of the things we actually enjoy involve an element of this. Um, then you then you realize we're already doing it quite often. Um, but yeah, I'm not. I haven't come up with like a formula of, you know, one painful experience to three pleasant experiences or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's also not for me in terms of like a ratio, but in terms of. Um, I don't know. It seems to me like it's it's a good idea to naturally try and make things easier for yourself in the future. That's what you might call progress, right? Just like yep. setting up a system that makes it easier. Yep. But somehow, then I feel like I slightly get trapped into this into this sense of it should be easy. <laughs> if that yeah. makes sense. I don't yeah. know. Is it maybe just trying to have it hard now to like always a bit tricky now to to be easier mm. later? Or because mm. for me, then it just becomes just like if it should be easy. Like why is it why is it difficult? Well, true, true, but but again, I mean, it, it it. So, I mean, an example of that, you know, when I, when I spent a a couple of months in um in Africa a couple of years ago, and you know, it took me a whole day to pay a bill um because I went to the bank and they didn't accept didn't accept cash, and the other bank didn't accept you know only America. Anyway, it was it was it was very very, and, and so I came back and when I got back to Australia and paid a bill, you know, using the internet in, in sort of, you know, three seconds and, and just was really grateful for that. You know, <laughs> yeah. for that. Um, but of course that then meant that I had time to go and engage in maybe go for a jog or, or, you know, maybe, maybe focus on, on doing some work um, that I was doing, uh, you know, so, so I don't think that, you know, I think we do make tasks easy, um, but then what we do is we tend to seek out harder tasks that, that, that it gives us the opportunity to seek out other kinds of challenges in life um and i, and I guess i you know i mean again you you're not washing your clothes but you're spending that time thinking hard about what you're doing in your phd which is it's, it's not it's not easy 
you know, it's it's a hard thing. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just I just think we, I think we actually do it quite frequently already. Um, we just we just don't see it. We don't we don't see that that's actually the we don't see that that's part of what where the value comes from. You know, you say, why do you run marathons? Well, you say, well, because I enjoy running marathons. Why do you enjoy running marathons? Well, because, you know, I, I find it enjoyable. But, okay, well, what if a marathon wasn't painful? What if it had no pain at all attached to it? What if it was just easy? Would you run it? Oh, I guess not. Um, okay, so I guess I'm seeking out pain um, when I run marathons because I enjoy that. Um, it's a challenging, it's difficult, it makes, you know, it, it, it gives me a sense of achievement, all of those things. So we're always seeking out that 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 other um in in those sorts of experiences we just don't realize it we don't we don't speak about it we don't kind of identify it um when we talk about it yeah so um you mentioned uh kids earlier i had one that was like one point i was curious about in terms of like um not necessarily not that i have children or want advice on how to raise children but i think it's maybe an interesting lens to look at this question um of like how do you yeah if someone doesn't know how to deal with this like how do you instruct them to think about this whole thing um hmm. yeah i mean I how old are your children now if I may ask. um i've got two two ten-year-olds twins and then a, a two-year-old so a bit, a bit of a range yeah <laughs> yeah um do you like try and instill <laughs> instill difficulty in their life <laughs> so it's not too easy or how do you or do they really have that anyway i don't know <laughs> um, no 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 i mean i'm quite aware of um uh you know the importance of embracing certain things so so um i'll try and get them out sometimes you know on, on a on a on a hike we, we we've still got a you know a, a one particular walk where there's a bit of a climb and you know it's a little bit sketchy and haven't quite got them up there yet but we'll do um uh, you know they, they do some indoor kids climbing gyms and you know it's quite it gets quite scary when you get to the top but again you you experience you experience that 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 capacity to to you know, to, to be in that position and to deal with that that fear um, through that, um, yeah. So there's a you know there's a range of of course you know they they play team sports and get get good at you know losing uh, when you, you know that's <laughs> something that you've got to get good at. Uh, yeah. So so I think you always you're always sort of wanting them to get out there to to, to try things to engage with things. I mean, it's part of it's it's part of being being active in life and being engaged because it's always there's always risk associated with that um and i think one of the things that is happening is that kids are you know kind of too often reverting back into um devices i mean of course there's risk on social media too but um it's yeah i think keeping keeping kids away from i mean look to be honest if, if they could just have sugar and tv for you know all day every day they'd be very very happy um but you know getting 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 away from that because that is that is you know that is like their their number one right they're like they could sit and eat sugar and just watch tv but of course that's just pure pure and they did actually we, we let them once we said you can do anything you want for a day so they spent 
I think it was like eleven or twelve hours watching like a repeat episode of you know these these different episodes of this, <laughs> this thing. and and after them afterwards one of them said I'm never doing that again and the other one said oh, I might do that again I'm not too sure. <laughs> yeah. That's the worst when you say like they'll they'll see how bad it is yeah, and they yeah, just really yeah. like it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. But um, but I think I think broadly they did get a sense that yeah you can't you can't just watch TV all day you've got to go and do something else. So um, yeah. So I think I think, but 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 it is it is I think good to uh, give them those opportunities to to take risks and, and 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 of course that means that as parents you need to be willing to let them take those risks so give them that independence you know at which point do they we've let we've started letting them ride to school by themselves there's risks associated with that they for them it's a, there's, there's a a sense of independence but also well I don't have somebody with me to look after me you know some some small amount of fear perhaps attached to that but ultimately through that they they gain confidence that they're able to to manage themselves and and you've got to give you know you, you as a parent you worry about oh that they made it to school there's been you know any any problems along the way but um so you've got to you've got to kind of restrain yourself from wanting to control all of that um yeah wait was it in your book about oh, where did i hear this that about what was it like fear of heights of children who fall out of trees or something oh, i'm just completely making this up right now don't Come recall on. don't recall that but um okay then i yeah i have no idea where this is then this i might have just made this up yeah based yeah. on me falling out of a tree as a child sorry my dog quincy let me just oh no i actually want to yeah yeah i mean the the funny thing is since i guess since the I mean, I've started this podcast during the pandemic, pretty much. And it seems that every episode, not every episode, but frequently, um, there will be some sort of family noise in the background, children crying, toddlers or whatever. <laughs> so my, my, my wife's gone to pick up the kids, so he's, he's lying. Let me go and let him in. He'll lie down here and then there'll be no yeah, more sure. barking in. All right, there we are. Sit, 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 lie down. All right. Well-behaved dog. Yeah, he's not too bad. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the best you can hope for, right? Exactly, exactly. Dog's not too crazy. Yeah. Um, maybe, so one, or maybe actually a last point about not sure this is really about children per se, but like one thing I know, like when I was like 16 or something, I started, you know, wanted to have some money so I can like buy all the cool stuff. Mm. And then I had like a, I worked in a supermarket for half a year and I hated it so much. Mm. Um, and I, I always wonder, like, I think that was like a very, uh, like, I mean, I was just at the, at the cashier yeah. just scanning items all yeah. day and just trying to stay awake basically. Yeah. Um, and, I always found that like these, some of these like unpleasant experiences are also just really good for guiding. You know, like I, I wonder like whether most of the things in life in that were work related, I've done pretty to the point. Mm. And whether that maybe is because I just realized like if you don't do this, you might have to do, do that. that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's a great example, actually. I mean, I've, I've done, I've done, so, I've done a lot of really shit jobs myself, actually. <laughs> and uh, it's, <laughs> 
it, it, I, I think it's really it's it's really important um, because it does teach you the value of good, you know, of what it means to actually have good work. Um, of course, that's not to say that some people don't aren't quite happy doing those jobs too. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Some people love it. I mean, yeah, exactly. Just sit there, talk to people. Whatever. Yep, yep. But if that if, if if you've got to push through and deal with something that you might otherwise prefer not to, and that's part of what you. Yeah, you've got to have that experience. Um, I think it teaches you a lot about, um, yeah, about, about, that, that sometimes there are, you, you've got to do things in life you don't want to do in order to achieve, you know, the goals you need to achieve. And um, there's a lot of people, I think, who struggle with that um, and, and perhaps have a, an expectation that they, that they shouldn't have to do anything that is not something they actually like. Um, obviously... In, in countries where we um, are quite comfortable and people have choices around those sorts of things, that is something that you know people have um, perhaps been able to expect more of. But but certainly there are other countries and, and experiences that people have where that's not a choice, um, and and it's a it's a matter of yeah it's a matter of something far more yeah um, far more basic for them. Yeah. This weird kind of adversity that, um, I mean, to me also like clarified just the relationship between like money and effort and that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, because I mean, like I was, you know, my family was uh, not poor or anything like that, but um, my friends got a lot more pocket money than me. Mm. So like I had to, you know, to, to, to afford the same cool things. I had, you know, it's pretty much I had to work, but then I really, I, I, quit after half a year because we were like nah <laughs> it's not worth this <laughs> like, yeah 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 no matter how yeah. cool the stuff is i can buy from it i'm not i'm not going back there no and i guess it depends what what yeah what what the reason is that you're doing it isn't it i mean the, you know the, the 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 end goal has to somehow um fit the fit the effort doesn't it if you really hate if you really hate the way you're spending your time just to get a nice watch you probably go actually what i probably don't need the watch <laughs> i don't need the watch yeah exactly <laughs> yeah um I don't know, like how how well you know the book per se, or how much you want to comment on it or something. But um, I'm just curious, uh, Brave New World. Mm. Um, what exactly is dystopian about that? What's the problem? It seems like everyone's more like one of your one of your twins who was kind of happy yeah, <laughs> watching yeah. TV all day and yeah, eating sugar. That's true. What's what's the problem with that? Well, I mean, it was written in that way, right? I mean, Aldous Huxley wrote it as a as a problem. Um, you know, he he viewed that as a very dystopian future where you know you you end up with some guy at the you know the, the main character at the end just trying to experience something, you know, through through painful acts. So it's it, um I think it's always for me been that um that narr- that 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 piece around really the idea that trying to eradicate all of our negative experiences and just experience pleasure really is is not not actually desirable or possible and you know quite often when i'm talking about this work i i start with that premise i show people a picture of someone in pain and say you're probably saying to me look why would i want to feel like this and then i show them a picture of a you know someone sort of walking through fields of wheat with this kind of blissful joy on on her face and say you know obviously that's what i want to feel like all the time you know joyful and blissful and never never ending happiness and just constantly always and as soon as you start just kind of going on like that it becomes pretty evident that it sounds a little bit banal um and and actually anything that goes on forever starts to become a a, you know a a bit a bit of an issue 
something you don't really want and, and so we, we do need contrasts um, and and sometimes we need to have a little bit of that difficulty or unpleasantness um, to to be able to even produce any of the pleasantness we experience and I think that's the whole point of that book is that you know the whole society is is kind of bereft of meaning in some ways um, uh, just because people are, have have not got any of that contrast they've just settled into this life where they can just simply you know, eradicate, eradicate all those negative experiences and just feel pleasure all the time. Seems a very meaningless existence. Yeah, is it in part the con? I mean, uh, this might be the kind of thing where this question is it either or, and it's the answers both. Um, but is the problem in part the contrast, or is it more the that they don't? As we say, the pleasure for them is not the result of effort they put into it, but rather just a consumption of um mm. what's it called again soma Super drug. soma soma yeah thanks um yeah absolutely so so any i mean look effort creates value right so anything you put effort into you get more value from you get more pleasure from um and and simply to to eradicate that part of the process or to take out you know again some aspect of an experience which is often the thing that we actually get the most pleasure from um is is just doesn't doesn't seem to sound it sounds kind of good on the surface but then as soon as you start to scratch the surface you go hang on a sec this doesn't actually seem like it would be all that good at all and of course we you know we we um we accommodate um uh and adjust as as to to various experiences as well so anything which is pleasurable for the moment will will eventually become quite just numb after a while or or downright unpleasant as well i mean you know eating chocolate becomes very unpleasant after a while watching tv endlessly becomes unpleasant after a while anything to excess uh, becomes unpleasant after a while of course you could keep you could probably keep jumping between different pleasures and sometimes we do but it's still eventually that becomes seems to become meaningless and then you need to go and find something that's challenging and difficult and effortful that, that, that asks something of you, that contributes something um, to others, that you know actually has a purpose to it, um, which isn't just about your own happiness and pleasure. Um, and often, again, those sorts of things ask something of us, right? If in, in any time you, again, as you know, with the cooperation games, pro-social behaviour costs costs us something um, normally, and and so uh, even if it's just a risk. So, you know, um, that's where you get the meaning from in life. That's where you get the, the, the actual pleasure and, and, the, 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 and you need those experiences. Then, then you can really indulge and enjoy the chocolate or you can enjoy the, the TV. You can feel that it's a reward worth, worth having. Um, it's just how we are. Um, there, there are. There are people out there. I, I had a debate with is it David Pierce, who I, I think I, I critiqued in my book um very nice guy um and you know we we had a, a bit of a debate because he 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 has the the idea that actually there's no reason why we couldn't actually eradicate all of these these negative experiences in people through the various technologies we have um but i think basically we just fundamentally disagree at that one, you know in the nicest possible way but just fundamentally disagree um that that's even actually something which would be desirable and i, and I think it's the difference is really just that um, I I accept the human architecture as it is and, and base my argument on that. He thinks, well, if we rewire that architecture, then we could end up with a, a you know a, a reality where we no longer need those experiences. And I suppose I can agree with that. I mean, if you rewire things enough, I suppose maybe you could. I don't know. But that seems like a very different reality to the one we're living. So 
Yeah, it also seems it's not even a contradiction, right? To say like, well, but if we change everything, then everything changes. Kind of mm. <laughs> not not to want to trivialize this argument. No, um, it's it's a different argument. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think the the premise is is sort of different. Um, so it depends where you start. But from. do you? I'm just curious. So, I mean, uh, the, the the question of is something possible is usually. <laughs> It's technical. We'll just wait fifty years and it will happen. True. But I'm curious, like whether something like soma would be possible, because it seems to me like the kind of drugs we, like the the narcotics or whatever we have now, they work in one way, in, in like one specific way of. I, mean, I don't even know exactly how they work. But the you mentioned, you know, that um, a lot of the meaning that kind of stuff comes mm. from other places. But in principle. Mm. You could should be able to stimulate that in some sort of chemical or whatever way too, right? So, mm. do you think something like soma is um, is actually possible in the sense that um, you know? Also, you said like you you you, you get used to whatever new situation is, but in principle, you could maybe also have a drug that kind of minimizes that at least or something. Mm. Well, look, one of, the, one of the things about the drugs we've got at the moment, whether it be antidepressants or painkillers, is they, they, they sort of numb more than anything else. I mean, antidepressants do do lift mood, but they also, they also there's also a bit of a numbing. Not, not, not everyone experiences that, but some people certainly report blunted, you know, blunted affect, um, positive affect on those on, as well. Um, and certainly there's evidence showing that, that painkillers not only blunt the negative, but also blunt the positive effects. So it seems that mostly, you know, to, 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 to a certain degree, the, the kinds of, you know, whether it be antidepressants or, or, or painkillers that we've got now, um, it, it's more of an, it's, it's a bit more of a numbing, um, rather than a kind of eradicating of one end of the hedonic spectrum. Um, it's more of a narrowing of that spectrum almost, um, the stabilizing of it, which some people really need, and that's why antidepressants are good. They stabilize the spectrum in some ways. People are, are, are not not falling into the pits of depression quite so much, but also not hitting the you know the, the heights of happiness perhaps quite so much as they were. And maybe that's for some people a really good thing because um, you want stability in life. But certainly we haven't found. I don't think any of the drugs that we've got, to my knowledge, are things which actually eradicate the negative hedonic aspect of our experience um, without also narrowing the positive hedonic aspect too um so so is, is it is it is it possible probably i'm sure we'd, maybe we'd come up with something but nothing we've got yeah, that's moment. what i mean like it seems always seems like someone's going to come up with it yeah, at some point could do um do you think people use it if it exists yeah i'm sure people would give it a crack <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because i mean that's i think the weird thing about pregnant word it seems to me I mean, if you take out like the whole political thing with renaming everything, you just like ignore that for a second and you just focus on there being this kind of drug that people, that just makes them meaningfully happy, let's say. Mm. Um, yeah. And yeah, there's nothing to me that suggests that that might not happen. Well, then you, then you get back to that, that old philosophical argument, you know, which is, um, and I'm just reading the details of it now, but you know, it, it's broadly, it's broadly the choice over whether you could, um, you know, experience this rather pleasant experience, but you would be in a, you know, VR machine or, or you, you, uh, I just, I'm forgetting the actual structure of the island, but broadly the point is, is that people would, people, we, we have this need to engage with reality 
um, and and we would prefer to be engaging with reality than to have this uh, other experience, which is actually not real. And and even when I mean, you position it, yeah, even when you position, you know, you, you put yourself into a VR machine or or you know a simulator, and you can simulate this experience, which is just lovely and perfect and wonderful, um, and you wouldn't even know. Um, you know, you had no actual, you know, you didn't realize that you were part of, that this was actually a simulated experience, um, but but it was simulated. Or you could just be part, you know, you could be part of this reality, which is sometimes you know, difficult and painful. And people do tend to still have the intuition, no, I think I'd choose reality. Um, I don't I don't want to be in a simulated experience, even if it's sort of so pleasant. So, so there's something about, um, you know, and I suppose in some ways, if we're sort of numbing and uh, I don't know. I mean, what is reality? But if we're numbing ourselves and 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 making us redesigning things so that we only, you know, we only sort of experience certain aspects of the world. If if those other aspects are actually there, do we want to know that that they are there? I, I, we seem to have an intuition that we we, we want to connect with that. Um, that's certainly that that thought experiment seems to demonstrate that to some degree. Yeah, it's interesting. The weird thing is, I don't know how I'd answer that if I had to make a decision. Mm. Like it's a weird thing where there's there's obviously one answer that seems like the one you should say. Mm. Um, like the choose reality mm. like stuff, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe we'll change. Maybe 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 our the way we think about this now is is, is going to be different in the future. Maybe, you know, yeah. um, the matrix doesn't won't seem so bad after all. Um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess I guess it's still a question that's more mm. hypothetical than potential. Yes, but, absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.